Welcome to The Long Run. This is a podcast for biotech adventurers. I'm your host, Luke Timmerman. Today we have a pair of guests, Julie Grant and Sam Blackman. Julie is a venture capitalist, a general partner at Canaan Partners. Sam is a pediatric oncologist and drug developer. After a routine business meeting, they realized they had something in common. They both believe that the biopharmaceutical industry can and should find a way to do a better job of developing cancer drugs for kids. So they did what scientific entrepreneurs do. They took a gamble, trying to figure out how to do something that hadn't been done before. They poured a lot of time and energy into fleshing out a concept for a purpose-built precision oncology company that put the needs of children first. That concept became South San Francisco-based Day One Biopharmaceuticals. Julie was the founding CEO and is the board chair, while Sam serves as the chief medical officer. I wrote about the company a couple of times for Timmerman Report before it went public, and subscribers can go back and read those articles from May 2020 and February of 2021. The company now has a market valuation of more than $1.5 billion on the day of this recording. Uh, Side note here, if day one is successful, its work could spill over and benefit adult cancer populations as well, and that may have something to do with the market valuation, but I digress. Julie and Sam are creative, tireless people who are really committed to this mission of helping kids with cancer. I think you'll hear that in their voices. I think you'll really just enjoy also hearing them talk about this new journey in applying science for the betterment of human health for all of us. Now, before we get started, here's a word from the sponsor of the long run, Thermo Fisher Scientific. After almost a decade of being graced by your presence, my sense of wonder and admiration for you has not waned one bit. In fact, it has only grown. This is an excerpt from a love letter written by Leonardo to his cells. One of several incredible love letters written by amazing research scientists to give us a glimpse into the wonderment, the beauty, and the challenges of cell research. Join us in this exploration of a connection like no other, part of the Love Your Cells campaign. Watch Leonardo read his amazing love letters at thermofisher.com slash gibco love your cells. I'll say that again. Thermofisher.com slash gibco love your cells. All one word. Now please join me and Julie Grant and Sam Blackman on the long run. Julie Grant and Sam Blackman, welcome to the long run. Thanks, Luke. Thanks, Luke. uh, Happy to be talking to you again. It's been a long time. Yeah. So uh, day one biopharmaceuticals, Uh, you are trying to chart a new course here in pediatric cancer drug development. Um, Can you start off by telling me like where this thing came from? What's the origin story of day one? Julie, do you want to start? Sure. I, uh, I, I think the origin story of, of day one is a lot of serendipity, a lot of fortune, and, and I think also um, a lot of really good people who wanted to make a difference in, in a group of patients who have been rather overlooked by our industry historically, which is children with cancer. 
And uh, Luke, I, I think back to, to some of our conversations, you know, thinking back to 2018 and before, um, we ran into each other at the Biden Cancer Initiatives uh, conference together. And the way that this really was raised on, on my radar was through a, a physician who at the time was the chair of the Children's Oncology Group, a gentleman named Peter Adamson who at the time was at uh, CHOP, so at uh, UPenn's Pediatric Oncology Center. And he, at these meetings that we were having to try and think about national level change for uh, oncology in the United States, he really raised to my attention that he, he thought that there were medicines that could potentially work for children that were not moving forward because of lack of support from the pharmaceutical industry. And, and that really caught my attention. And um, we had a series of meetings where he educated me along with a woman named Susan Weiner, who lost her child to, to cancer and has been a lifelong advocate in, in, in the field and talking to Congress about legislation. And through that process, I became much more aware of, of this, this unmet need in pediatric oncology. And it, it hit me that it also could create a real opportunity for a company. Originally, I was thinking it would be a nonprofit that I would be part of. But then over time, it, it really converted into a concept which we can get into um, as a for-profit. And well, can, I met. Can, can you elaborate ahead. just a little bit on like what was going through your mind at this time? Because you're a venture capitalist, you're in the business of starting companies, kind of connecting dots from disparate concepts, like crossing disciplines on, on occasion. What were you seeing in the wider world of drug development that made you think actually some of these old objections? to pediatric cancer drug development could be passe and maybe maybe there's an opportunity here to um, take some of those concepts and apply them here toward this particular medical need. Yeah, you know, it. I feel like thinking of new company ideas is, is sometimes a confluence of uh, your historical experiences, right? You have to have a seed that you're, you're drawing upon. So for me, my my last role when I left Genentech and, and then what became Roche um, in 2011 is I was the lead market planner for new oncology products for the U.S. market, which is basically to try and think about how medicines that have shown that they could potentially work at a phase one trial for oncology patients should be launched in the U.S. and how to get there faster and how to maximize value for a pharmaceutical company. And then I joined a venture capital fund which is Canaan, where I've been for eight years, where we invest in small businesses, small businesses that are looking for new pharmaceutical products that we can move really quickly to proof of concept and beyond and make a difference to patients. And what I noticed is a lot of the features of the pediatric oncology community, you know, an unmet medical need that is genetically defined, um, people who had no standard of care, uh, the ability to drive dramatic outcome for patients to be able to really use a single medicine to be able to, to shrink tumors and to be able to talk to the FDA and regulators in a collaborative fashion about defining endpoints. All of those features that we have seen in the rare disease, non-oncology world in the venture community actually existed here in the pediatric community for cancer. And that it was being overlooked a lot of the times because people hadn't run the numbers on how to define markets by target versus just looking at the incident patient population for one specific subsegment of pediatric cancers. To put it simply, 
I think that people were just doing the math wrong on thinking about the market and that people had not yet understood that this was actually a really amazing opportunity to do good and to bring medicines to people who had no alternative while also redefining the way that we think about drug development by leading with children who have no other option to do right by them, and also to create a total market defined by the, the, the underlying genetics of a tumor, the underlying target biology. And that allows you to add up and create a market that actually is quite attractive for, for a company to pursue while also including rarer populations like children. You, you add up, a, you know, Children who have a glioma that have a certain genetic tumor that also has the same genetics in a lung cancer patient and a colorectal patient and a breast cancer patient at different percentages. When, when you think about every place that this medicine could help patients, you realize it's actually a bigger opportunity. Okay, so you're seeing things happening in the rare disease market that says th- th- there are business models here that can work for rare disease uh, where there had previously been like no real sense that there was much of a market. Uh, yeah. There's a way forward there with the FDA. The biology is getting more and more precise and pointing us towards specific patient populations. Maybe this will work for pediatric cancer. So you're, you're sort of turning over these concepts and thinking about it and thinking about it. And then you meet this guy, Sam. Um, <laughs> what, what, what ha- how'd this happen? What happened? Oh my gosh. So I'm, I'm friends with a gentleman who is mutual friends with Sam named Badruddin Edris and Peter Thompson. And they were at Orbimed and they incubated a company called Silverback where Sam was working at the time. And they had come to Canaan and asked me if I would consider funding the company. And at the end of the meeting where Sam was very compelling and incredibly intelligent, he, he said, you know, I was like, Hey, um, you're a pediatric oncologist. Can I can I find time outside of this meeting just to ask you a few questions about this pediatric oncology idea that I'm working on? And it turns out that Sam, who has been, you know, a lifelong advocate and participant of thinking about how to bring new medicines to to children with cancer, um, had been thinking about this as well, and it sparked a conversation. And so. Sam, maybe you can talk about what what you had been been thinking about before we actually met that day at Caden's office. Yeah, thanks. It's it's almost it's almost as if um, you know I was the, the the yin to the to the yang. So you know I've been a, a pediatric oncologist, a clinical pediatric oncologist, and neurologist, and then I've been doing cancer drug development for for about thirteen years. And I started my career at a time when. Uh, initially, the European Medicines Association, and this is now expanded to the, the, the US FDA, started requiring companies to think about pediatric drug development planning much earlier in the process. And so I learned, you know, I, I, I came up through industry at a time where pediatric drug development work was really to meet a regulatory obligation, but that, that work was always tied to the success or failure of a drug in the adult indications that the company was far more interested in. And so I would devise, you know, what I thought were rather clever pediatric development plans, but if the adult indication failed and the program was shut down, the pediatric work was never pursued. And so I saw, you know, similarly to what, what Julie saw, the problem of really interesting biology that could be important for pediatric cancer patients just sort of sitting on the sidelines. And, and over the last three or four years, I've been involved in a European group called Accelerate, which is a, a cross-functional group composed of regulators and academics and patient advocates and 
and industry representatives trying to come up with new solutions for to, to the problem of slow drug development for pediatric oncology. And they put me uh, as co-lead of a working group with a woman named Delphine Heenan at a Belgian charity of all, all things called Kick Cancer. Uh, and this working group was there to design a new business model for pediatric oncology uh, uh, drug development. And so it was, it was me and a number of people from Belgium, but not I mean, not just advocates, uh, Delphine's husband, Jean-Charles Van der Brandon is a partner of Bain and Sam Dams at uh, a, a private equity firm in Belgium and Raphael Rousseau from, from who was at the time at Roche Genentech. And we had devised a model. We said, well, what if we in-licensed old molecules, retargeted them for pediatric indications, uh, moved them forward to proof of concept or to a regular, you know, a path towards regulatory approval, and then sold those molecules onto a company who would then take them forward because we'd also found other ways to, to use them. Could we turn that into a business? Basically, almost like an accelerator model uh, using uh, pediatric oncology as the fastest path to approval, the fastest path to bringing value to patients. So this was an idea and the, 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 the group said, well, maybe this should be a not-for-profit. And we just couldn't figure out a way to make the math work to turn it into a business where you could actually get capital. So when I met Julie. Wait, wait, wait. So said, Sam, you were, you were doing this as kind of like a side project while you had your day yeah. job at these other companies working primarily on cancer drugs for adults. That's all I was doing. So I was full-time at Silverbeck, but on once a week at four o'clock in the morning, I'd get up and I'd be on the phone with my colleagues in Belgium and we'd be trying to flesh out this model. So when Julie... Uh, said, do you want to talk about pediatric oncology? Julie was the first person in the investment banking or or venture capital or any type of financial uh, community, somebody with business sense who had ever said, hey, are you interested in pediatric oncology? I've never found anybody from the investor side interested in pediatric oncology. And so I immediately said, well, this is a person I need to get to know and, and to know well. And we started comparing notes and realized that we had this this mutual interest, but more importantly, we began to see like, hey, wait a second, maybe there's a, a there there. Uh, but I had a full-time job and I couldn't, Julie was like, well, you want to build a business? And I'm, I, I said, well, I've got a full-time job. And if I quit in the middle of our fundraising for our Series B, you know, Peter Thompson will probably come in and kneecap me. And uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> all due respect to Peter, no, I'm actually would be concerned about that. I love the guy, but but I know that uh, that would not go well. So, um, uh, so I said, no, I, 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 I have a full-time job. So when did that change and how did you des- decide to like go all in on this um, side project at the time? Well, so, you know, everything was humming along at Silverback and then, and then we hit a bump in the road, just a, you know, uh, a, a scientific bump in a road that, it necessitated Silverback, you know, resetting the organization and 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 focusing much more on R and D. And so they let the clinical group go, uh, which included me and uh, a number of other functions. And so I found myself not not three months after meeting Julia, I found myself essentially as a free agent. Uh, and it was it was it was actually really hard. I mean, I don't want to be glib about it. It was a it was a really tough week. Uh, but I texted Julia and I said, Hey, listen. Uh, you know, if you want to talk about that pediatric idea, I have all the time in the world. Uh, and Julie uh, got back to me right away, said, you know, take some time to recover from Silverback. But but yes. And and that was the summer of 2018. And, you know, we, we still have those texts and emails 
Well, and that's around when I think I saw you two at the Biden Cancer Summit, and I was sort of sniffing around that you know you two are cooking something up. I don't know exactly what it is, and you're, you weren't telling me anything about it at the time. Um, and it really, it really was just kind of you're, you're whiteboarding this. You, you were thinking thinking it through. Um, yeah. But how did this uh, congeal <laughs> into a company where you got the confidence to like put some money in and and go full time at it? Yeah, maybe maybe I'll jump in here, Sam, because I I think this is um this comes down to the crux of what wh- why I think pediatric oncology has been overlooked um really at a lot of levels, um you know Luke, if you think about talking to anyone, literally anyone in the world, and saying would would you like to help children with cancer have better options? Like, never have I met a person who says no. Everyone says yes. It's like. Of course, of course, I want kids to have better options. Of course, I want to help them get better medicines. Of course, we want to cure them. The question is, how does a for-profit company that makes pharmaceutical products make money? And how do investors make money? I mean, like, we really have to talk about this. It's the, the reason why kids have been left behind is it's, it's a business problem. It's not a science problem. A lot of it's still a science problem, but some of it's not. And my argument to my partnership, which really were open to talking about this, was um, one, if you run the numbers on some of the pediatric indications, they are larger than some of the rare orphan monogenic disorders that we fund in other indications. And people, frankly, just haven't run the epidemiology, which is just it hasn't been done and people are so, misinformed. And so we ran the numbers. We, we ran the numbers on, you know, sarcomas, gliomas, leukemias, lymphomas for children. And then we said, where else could those medicines be used? And can they on their own be a market? And then we went and said, where are there compounds to the targets that underlie the biology of the main causes of cancers for children? And are there reasons to believe that we could drug those targets? And there are reasons to believe that those patients, that their tumors would shrink and they would live better, stronger lives. And if you could underwrite the science and you could underwrite the market, then the question was, could you get compounds? And so we've seeded a search effort with Sam and me and a number of advisors to go and incorporate a company. So we seeded the company at Canaan. We co-founded the company at Canaan. And I committed to being the acting CEO with Sam to go hunt down compounds against the targets that we thought would be transformation, transformational for kids. And we, Man. I'll let Sam tell the story, but. Um, well, but the way you described this to me a year ago, Julie, you called it a market solution to a moral problem. Yeah. And, and, and that, that people, um, like you say, uh, they all sympathize with kids with cancer and would love to do something to help, but there just wasn't um either the awareness of the market opportunity or somebody hadn't really done a pencil it all out and shown that actually there, there is like, so you were making an economic argument to your partners that if we do this, if we put in $1, we could get $3 out the other side, basically. And it, and a big reason why that mattered to, to me coming back to where this started, you know, Sam and I were both volunteering with nonprofit organizations with parents and with parents who had lost their children. And I think that for us, what we realized is 
there actually was a lot of support for funding trials to understand the science and the biology through investigator-sponsored trials and nonprofit trials and trials through the Children's Oncology Group. The problem is that even if you do those trials, often medicines that show promise aren't approved. They don't get across the line with the FDA and they don't get covered by insurance. And so, in fact, the real problem that had to be solved for the patients and for the community was to sustainably have approved products that are manufactured and reimbursed. You had to get access, sustainable access. And and we thought that the only way to do that was by building a company, a company that you could get shareholders to finance it to a vertically integrated, pediatric committed pharmaceutical company that would get it approved, get it manufactured, and get it reimbursed. And that required the formation of a real pharmaceutical company. And that that really is what made me realize that we needed to make a business case to get Fidelity and RA Capital and Canaan and Atlas and Access to believe this on the fundamentals, not just because we wanted to help patients, which we do, but because in order to help patients, you need the money. In you need order the money. to help. Yeah. You, you need the business model. You need all those things. But you also need the, the people. Um, That's right. and, say, and, and this is why Sam uh, you know, rose up on your uh, radar screen. Pediatric oncologist um, by training, you know, knows the, the field, um, knows drug development, uh, has relationships that are going to be really important if you're going to execute on, on this kind of uh, um, strategy. So, so you go scouting, uh, you and Sam together, you're, <laughs> you're scouting for a while. Like, where, where's, the, where's the right opportunity with where the biology looks encouraging? Uh, and, and there's maybe some existing assets somewhere uh, that you don't need to invent out of whole cloth where like there's a line of sight through clinical development that's, you know, lean and mean and, and reasonable on, on a venture capital budget. What, um, how, how, could you describe this process? Maybe Sam, you want to. Yeah, I know. And you've, you, you've actually sum, summarized it, summarized it perfectly. If you look Right. So part part we're we're I think a lot of a lot of what happened to, to allow day one to come into being is, you know, right place, right time. There's been extensive, you know, sequencing of adult cancers to try to define driver oncogenes. And those efforts have now finally caught up on the on the pediatric side. And people have been publishing, you know, accumulating publishing large data sets to define really where are the druggable driver driver mutations in pediatric cancers. And where does that overlap with adult cancers? And if you look at the Venn diagram of the universe of, you know, sort of known druggable drivers in adult cancer and known druggable drivers in pediatric cancer, there's a pretty good intersection set there. And so for a lot of us, it starts with the observations from the biology of childhood cancer asking, where is their overlap with adult cancers? Because that gives you a path to value, not just in value and benefit, not just for pediatric patients, but for adult patients. What are the drugs that are out there? And then thinking about this through a business development lens, what could we possibly acquire? And then layering onto that, what's the clinical development path? What's the regulatory requirements going to be to demonstrate clinical benefit? And then how do you find the ones where it's high probability of technical success, high probability of regulatory success, something that's going to be feasible that a small company can achieve. So the funnel, much like a screening funnel for a new medicine, 
it's very much the same. You start with a big target space and number of drugs and indications, and then you get down to a relatively circumscribed set of, of what we thought were high value indications. And you know, our initial target list probably had 40 or, or 45 different targets. And we ran to ground quite a number of them. And they're, they're targets that, you know, as you see it, the cyclical nature of how we think about drug development, some of them were, you know, things that people have been thinking about for a while, where, you know, we then started uh, tapping our network to say, you know, where are sources of data? What, where have you seen um, evidence of activity in, in preclinical models that's convincing? Where has, have you seen interesting observations in phase one trials? And the nice thing about the pediatric oncology network is it's relatively small uh, and trusting and the ability, and, and everybody wants to help solve the problem. So when you call up and say, hey, listen, you know, we're looking at target X and you've run a trial you know, an academic IST of a drug against target X, can you share with me what you've observed, evidence of pharmacodynamic activity, safety, clinical activity? Can you give me reason to believe why we should try to get a hold of a, a drug against target X and develop that for, for children with the disease that you're interested in? People are going to answer those phone calls and really be forthcoming. Now, how did you uh, settle on uh, that lead, what became your lead compound, the one from Takeda, a oral PANRAF uh, inhibitor. What intrigued you about that one? So well, maybe I'll, I'll start because it's, it's a really interesting story and it, it also yeah. shows the serendipitous nature of all of the things that have come to, come to pass at day one. So back along now quite a number of years ago, uh, probably almost nine years ago, uh, my former mentor, Mark Kieran, who was uh, at the time the head of pediatric neuro-oncology at Dana-Farber, invited me to be on a scientific advisory board for a pediatric low-grade astrocytoma foundation. And I've been doing that for, for quite a while. And along the way, I heard uh, this group of investigators and clinicians really uh, uh, have a lot of excitement around a drug that was then called TAC580 or MLN2480, which is a PANRAF, as you described, a, a brain-penetrant oral PANRAF inhibitor. They were looking at that drug as a potential, potentially important therapeutic for children with relapsed low-grade glioma because 60-some percent of patients with relapsed low-grade glioma have RAF alterations, either wild-type fusions or, or single nucleotide variations as, driver, as the sole driver oncogene. And they had focused on this drug and it actually managed to get supply to run preclinical experiments and then clinical supply to run an investigator-sponsored trial through the Dana-Farber and a, a group called the Pacific Pediatric Neuro-Oncology Consortium. So that has always been in the back of my brain. And probably six weeks or eight weeks after we set up day one, actually incorporated, and, and I couldn't believe it. I was sitting in my office in, in, in the home office in Seattle in the basement, and I got an email through uh, Raphael Rousseau connecting me with a guy at Decatur named Paul Junowitz, who I've known for a long time. And Paul and I got on the phone because uh, Raphael said, Paul's got a program that you might be interested in. And, and Paul uh, and I talked, he said, hey, listen, Takeda's looking to find a new home for TAC 580. Would you be interested with your new company? And I, <laughs> this is a drug that I've been hearing about for five or six years in pediatric brain tumors. And I almost fell out of my chair uh, and called Julie. And I said, you're not going to believe this. Uh, this may be this 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 drug may be the the drug you know for us to to, to anchor this company around. And now, for just a little bit a little bit of background here, uh, for those who may not know, I mean there were BRAF inhibitors on the market for a number of years from I think Roche and Pfizer, but they were for a specific 
type of mutation, right? They were not pan-RAF. Um, and so they were largely confined to adults with um, melanoma. But Takeda had this idea that, you know, maybe there are some more indications if, with a pan-RAF. And they had put it through a number of paces, right? Uh, what, 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 what kind of asset were you looking at at this point? So this was a drug that had been in over, you know, over 225 adult patients that showed activity in BRAF B600 mutant melanoma. So, you know, the same indications where the BRAF and Tremetinib had been, uh, had been uh, uh, approved and were marketed. But, you know, the PANRAF inhibitor really was a drug that was intended to address wild type RAF or non B600 mutant RAF. And at the time that Decada was developing it back in the, the mid 2010s, we just didn't have the type of sequencing that was commoditized and readily available to identify co cohorts of those patients. And so the trials that they ran were good trials really focused on, you know, what was then called, you know, BRAF mutant melanoma and non-BRAF mutant melanoma, but that was just the B600, uh, but didn't have, they didn't have at the time the technical ability to focus on this class of BRAF or CRAF fusions. And, and so the, the program, you know, ultimately fell behind because the melanoma space was so rapidly dominated, not just by the, the type one RAF inhibitors for V600 mutations, but by the PD-1s that Takeda had, had really deprioritized it. Uh, pediatric low-grade glioma, the, the major driver of mutation in that population is a wild-type fusion where the, the type one RAF inhibitors, the dibrafenibs and the, the bemurafenibs can't be used. So there was a big unmet need, and now we had a drug that, that from a mechanistic point of view, and preclinically you know, demonstrated could be the right drug for, for, for that population. And it was a matter of, of really connecting the dots and saying, does this, do we think that this is going to work? Is there clinical or preclinical evidence to support that? And then what's the registrational path? How do you, how do you actually get a drug approved for a disease where there's never been a drug approved? So Julie, what was this first conversation like when Sam calls you up and says, you're not going to believe this? So, uh, you know, it's interesting. I was super excited because um, I, I had also worked on a lot of precision oncology products, both at Genentech at Canaan, you know, and the whole thesis of this company was, can, can we find programs that are hidden, that people have overlooked, that could show a transformational benefit to children? Do we, do we, can we find those? And we had been looking at a number of programs, you know, at the time that we financed the company, this is, we didn't know about this. And we didn't know about the emerging data. So we, we got on a plane and um, flew to Boston and, and met in Millennium's old offices, now Takeda's offices, and um, saw the scans. And we literally sat there in a, in a, in a big conference room. Uh, actually, there was an uh, investigator, Karen Wright, who presented. And um, you could see the responses. You could see the tumor shrink on the radiographic you know, images of, of, of these patients. And, um, you know, I have to say that this is a really different experience for me, not having been in the pediatric community before, because these scans are of children. They're really small bodies. It, it reminds you always of who's being treated. I think that the, the journey of this is you, you meet people, you meet parents, you see these scans, and you're always reminded that you're, you're treating a seven-year-old. You're treating well, no. a 10-year-old. Wait a second, Julie. So, I thought the data, the data was preclinical. No, no. MRF. So the, the beauty of this was there was a Takeda provided drug and some financial support to an investigator sponsored trial that had been started at Dana-Farber. 
And the a nonprofit um, actually was providing the funding for this trial, the majority of the funding of this trial, where they had treated 13 children and they had chosen TAC 580 based upon preclinical data that the Dana-Farber had generated about the activity of TAC 580 in wild type fusions. And so they thought this would be the best product to potentially work in, in this patient population, which is why they went and asked for access from Takeda. And Takeda generously provided that. And we were seeing the outcome of a trial that had been running for some patients for, for a few years. And, um, you know, there, there were compassionate use patients that had been given access to this product that had seen a benefit as well. And so suddenly we had what I will call is clinical proof of concept, watching responses emerge with a product that had been in 220 adult patients that had a large safety profile that we now knew had validation to work in two genetic populations across the MAP kinase pathway. Okay. And as you know, and so now that, and then this would have been unpublished data. Right. So. This was unpublished data. And so, you know, our, our question was, okay, you know, how do we work with Takeda, which actually has been an amazing partner and an advocate for finding an organization that would take this forward? And um, what they recognized was that developing products for rare pediatric oncology patients in gliomas is a really specific skill. And so we were building a company to be able to go after these undefined, totally new patients that had no previously approved products that are very unique trials to run, that you need to be a member of this community to understand how to engage with parents and physicians and investigators and the FDA and the EMEA. And, and we were committed to, to building that organization if we were the party that could take this product forward. After almost a decade of being graced by your presence, my sense of wonder and admiration for you has not waned one bit. In fact, it has only grown. This is an excerpt from a love letter written by Leonardo to his cells. One of several incredible love letters written by amazing research scientists to give us a glimpse into the wonderment, the beauty, and the challenges of cell research. Join us in this exploration of a connection like no other, part of the Love Yourselves campaign. Watch Leonardo read his amazing love letters at thermofisher.com slash Gibco Love Yourselves, all one word. And if you like listening to this show, you'll love reading Timmerman Report. This is the place where you'll get to read my weekly columns, regular profiles of interesting biotech startups, and insightful commentary from a diverse cast of contributing writers. TR is a reader-supported publication. You can support quality independent biotech journalism like this by purchasing an annual subscription for $169 a year. Go to TimmermanReport.com for more. Listeners might wonder, well, if this is such a good drug, why uh, wouldn't Takeda keep it for itself? Yeah, it's a great question. It's actually that 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 psychology is exactly why sometimes drugs get shelved, right? Um, Takeda in their own in their own investor disclosures this is nothing nothing new to the, the street. I mean they they are very focused on a couple key therapeutic areas that are the primary emphasis of their their activities and business and 
And this was not on roadmap. And they were trying to do the right thing of finding a home for a company that would be committed to take this product forward. And okay. that's it. I mean, so. It, it, and really, in this case. Really to, their, to their benefit. I, I, I do want to, I do want to call out, you know, Dan Curran and, 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 and Zach Carey and, and Paul Junowitz and Rachel Brake at Decatur. I mean, they, they were just. Amazing. Really amazing advocates to make sure uh, that the drug found a home and could continue. And I, I have to say to take a chance, because when we came in, uh, it was, it was Julie and me and a couple of, a couple of advisors, you know, and the company was, was essentially Sam's basement office and, uh, and Julie's Indeed. dining room table. <laughs> yeah. And for us to come in and say, Hey, listen, we, we, we think that we can in license this program, pick up manufacturing and drive it all the way forward uh, uh, to create value, not, not just for patients, but also for, for, for you to get, and, and that we could get the, we could get investor dollars to do this. It was a huge, uh, they took a big chance on, on, yeah. on us as well. But this is the nature of startups, right? I mean, you're going to put, you know, all of your time and energy and talents and, and experience and everything into this one thing. And it's do or die. Like the company will sink or swim based on um, this program. It's not, you know, a third tier priority in somebody's pipeline uh, that might get lost in the shuffle or get divested at some point. Like this is it. This is it. <laughs> And it was a really, and we could not have done this without, the, you know, so much mutual trust between the academic yeah. investigators and the Pacific Pediatric Neuro-Oncology Consortium, the team at Dana-Farber, the Team Jack Foundation, Pediatric Low-Grade Astrocytoma Foundation, those people who had put money in uh, to, to getting this trial up and running, obviously Takeda. And then, you know, you know, Kane and, 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 and Atlas and Access who came in on the Series A, they, they saw the reason to believe. I think the other big thing, Luke, that, that, that made a real difference here is we, when we dug in and we understood the nature of pediatric lowering gliomas and the current treatment paradigm, one of the things that I think had gone unrecognized was that these are children, these are slow growing tumors. And with a drug that's well tolerated, you know, you've got a broken kinase, it's going to signal all the time. But then these tumors, for some reason, senesce when patients get to their early 20s. And so the treatment paradigm currently with, with chemotherapy is treat, 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 essentially, you know, first to the limits of tolerability for your regimen, and then you wait. And if the tumor progresses, you treat some more. But if you say, well, wait a second, we're going to be treating with a kinase inhibitor, and it may be for prolonged periods or on and off for prolonged periods, and you integrate sort of the area under that treatment curve, even if it's a small number of patients, you're treating them for a long period of time. And that's what makes the math work. That's what allows you to say, all right, with a small focused development program that's going to cost X, you're, you're going to be developing a drug that may be applied to patients for a number of years, a you know, certain number of patients over a far longer number of years than if this was relapsed non-small cell lung cancer, or relapsed pancreas cancer. And that's how the math ended up working to justify the investment. Yeah. Well, and I know, and we can talk about this a little later, but I know you're also um, turning the model on its head in a way in which, you know, you can, you know, establish that uh, biology and the clinical proof of concept in kids with cancer, start there and, and then extend upon that to adults who have, you know, yeah. very biologically similar cancers. Uh, you can sort of do a fast follow development program there. Um, and, and that, that opens up a larger patient population with your exact same drug. Um, and I, I know, I know you guys have those trials, you know, in the works as well. Yes. 
And, and I, there's reason to believe that these types of this paradigm can be, we have every reason to believe that this can be repeated. If you look at the overwhelming majority of pediatric cancers, there is only one that I'm aware of that's got an approved agent in the second line. Everything else, there are no approved agents and really in, in most instances, no clear standard of care. So if you, if you believe that the fastest path to value creation, fastest path to approval is going to be in a setting where there's no, there are no approved agents, no standard of care, have a look at pediatric oncology because there's a hundred different diseases there that fit that bill. That's right. Okay. So, I, that's right. I, and I, if I may just add on, I think it's this, this idea of putting kids first um, to move faster and to put kids first so that they get access to the most modern and innovative medicines versus waiting on average right now. And, you know, Luke, we talked about this before, but for your listeners, you know, right now, children in general in the United States, in the U.S., get access to new experimental medicines and clinical trials six and a half years after the first adult. It is a lifetime when we think about the innovations and how fast the science is changing in, in the pharmaceutical industry today. And so the innovation was how do we move faster for the company, align incentives for these patients who have been left behind, and to get these products approved quicker by going after indications that are genetically defined and have no standard of care. And so we are inverting the classical drug development timeline to put kids first, which is frankly and I had a lot of conversations about this in the community because it was a question that I had was, is that how the physicians and the parents that treat these children, that take care of these children, is that what they wanted? And the answer was unequivocally yes. And then really? we talk- people might oh, think yeah. they'd be uncomfortable. Like if, you no. know, should this be tested in adults first and then, you know, do like classical things like, well, you know, cut the dose in half and try it out, you know, and kids be very, very cautious. Right. It's true. I, I think that we are very cautious, but unfortunately we're so cautious about it that there's all these kids that get nothing. And I think that what's happened is people have made false assumptions about it that, it turns out, and Sam can tell you all the data, we looked into this before we invested in the company and continue to pressure test our assumptions, which is, you know, often the maximum tolerated dose in children is higher in precision oncology products than in adults. It's actually kids tolerate it better. Often um, we find that the FDA, actually the FDA has created white papers and guidelines to try and encourage the industry to consider new development paths for children. And a lot of people in industry assume that the FDA would actually be a barrier to treating in children because they would be concerned about safety. Of course, they're concerned about safety. And often you do your first dose escalation in adults. The issue is once you hit your MTD and you actually have answered some of the initial safety questions, people wait another five years before they give access to children. And so what we do is we do dose escalation and initial exploration in, in adults to confirm that it's safe. And then we try to get into unmet medical need, late stage pediatric patients who could benefit as fast as we possibly can. And, and that is actually what the community told us that they wanted. That's so, really interesting. Yeah. Because like, wait, wait, waiting five, six years, I mean, uh, what are you waiting for? I mean, kids are dying. Kids need it. That, that's, 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 that's exactly right. And, you know, the FDA and, and the Europeans as well, I think, have 
have, have been trying to send signals. A couple, maybe two years ago or a year ago, the FDA released a draft guidance. It, it, it did not get a lot of press. And I really think it's something that people should be more aware of, saying that if you've got a molecularly targeted therapy and uh, uh, you know, for, you know, for, in oncology, and you're running a phase one trial, you should really consider including patients down to the age of 12 if they've got a cancer with the same target. And the reason is that from a developmental perspective, you know, it's, it's a slippery slope question. You tell me the difference from a biological point of view before, between somebody who's 17 years and 364 days and 18 years in one day, and there, there really isn't. But the 18-year, one-day person is eligible for most phase one trials in oncology, and the 17-years, 364-day-old person isn't. <laughs> and so the question that you have to ask yourself is, all right, what about 16 years? What about 15 years? Where's the biological breakpoint where there may be safety considerations you need, need to take, take into account when putting somebody on a phase one? And it's right around 12 is where you begin to see differences in development and PK that could could you know make you want to run a separate phase one trial, but the FDA wants wants us to include younger patients as early as possible, and and you know what we're doing is 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 really trying to hew to that that guide. Okay, Let, let's fast forward a little bit now. So you, you're up and running. You got your business. You, you got your, your Series A funding, something like sixty million dollars. You got a good syndicate of investors with deep pockets and staying power around the table. Uh, now you're you're really um, putting together your team, a small crack team of people that can help you do the put together your development plan. Uh, you set up a phase one trial. Uh, can you describe that trial, how it was designed, what you were trying to answer there, and what did we learn? Well, so so for actually, so we built this off of the existing phase one trial that had already already started, the academic trial that had already started, what we did is we saw the initial data that came out, it was subsequently presented at the Society for Neuro-Oncology this past November, that reported on the first cohort of nine patients for which we have complete data. We actually um, looked at that data as so strong that we felt that we should be starting our first sponsor trial as a phase two uh, pivotal trial. And what we did after we set up the company and got the Series A is we went and talked to the FDA. We put together very quickly, not only our, our, our type B meeting request and our briefing document, uh, we were also in parallel writing our pediatric investigation plan for the EMA to discuss really a, a, a very expedited development plan in relapsed pediatric low glioma patients. And so you know, we had, uh, we had uh, feedback from the FDA in the, in the spring of 2019, right before we came out of stealth mode and used that. Uh, as the basis for designing a registrational trial at okay. it's called Firefly One, and that's what's up and running right now. Well, let's back up then and talk about that investigator-sponsored study. The the uh, I guess it's nine patients that was presented at the Society for Neuro-Oncology just, um, let's see, this last fall of 2020, I think. we The world finally got a good look at this, uh, what you, you had been seeing for a while. But what, what, did, what did you see? Yeah, so this was a, a trial that accrued nine patients with you know heavily pretreated patients. The median number of prior lines of treatment that these kids had gotten is four, with some kids uh, having gotten seven prior lines of therapy, which is by the way not uncommon for this uh, this disease. Kids will be treated over many many years, and uh, there were eight patients of those nine who had RAF alterations, and what we saw is uh, you know two CRs and three PRs by Reno criteria. 
in those nine patients and then two patients with prolonged stable disease. Uh, the, the, the other important thing that we saw is that the, the drug was really well tolerated with patients being able to be treated out to two years, which is the prescribed uh, duration of treatment on the study, and able to keep, uh, keep these tumors in check. And the responses so were not subtle. They were, they were dramatic, rapid responses with some patients having near CRs by eight weeks after the initiation of therapy. So to summarize this, I mean, there were eight of the nine patients had RAF fusions. RAF um, fusions. So the, these were, you know, uh, biologically, you know, pretty likely to respond. You, based on the drug that you had, you had a good feeling. And what we actually saw was two complete responses three partial responses, two stable disease. I mean, adding that up, I mean, I'm not a mathematician, but seven out of eight are um, doing pretty well. That's correct. Uh, yeah, that's, that's, the, that's the waterfall you dream of in industry. That's, that's, that's right. It, it is a, you know, you see some of these scans and, and they're, they're in the, the materials from that meeting. Um, there are, you can see the tumors and then a lot of the tumors are, are not there. And so and you, it's, don't, you don't it's, have to be a neuroradiologist. You don't have to, <laughs> you don't have to guess. And so it's, uh, you know, that's the data that we saw when we went to Millennium and we went to Takeda uh, and just, we, we've been waiting to tell it, but I think part of what Sam talked about before is, you know, our hope because these kids in the standard of care, they, you know, frontline standard of care is you get a combination chemotherapy agent for over a year. That means the kids are probably out of school. It means the parents are probably on disability. It means that they have to come in for infusions every week. Some of these kids had seen four lines of chemo, um, you know, none of which is an approved standard of care in those later lines because there is no standard of care. The physicians are doing their best they can. They've seen off-label other precision oncology products that failed. And then there were these kids who had been on drug, some of them for multiple years now. And so... Um, you know, and your drug can be given as a monotherapy, right? Yeah. Once a week. And so Once when you week, think about monotherapy, yeah. no chemotherapy. Now, chemotherapy, right. re repeated rounds like four, five, six, whatever, that, that is associated with later in life secondary malignancies popping up. So, I mean, it, it's a two-edged sword, right? The chemotherapy for pediatric cancers is, 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 has been great for extending survival, but there are some downstream consequences, which yeah, you the, might kind of like to avoid if you could, if you could give somebody a targeted therapy at the first or second right. line. And that's exactly it. You have, you know, the thinking about pediatric oncology really has to be, you know. Oh, Sam, you, Sam? Fr you froze up, what, Sam. What oh, you went back now. Can, oh, you, yeah, can you go back about 30 seconds? Yeah. So, so this is an, an important distinction in pediatric oncology versus adult oncology. You know, if you're 70 years old and you've got relapsed lung cancer, you've got a patient with relapsed lung, lung cancer, you're going to treat that patient aggressively. But in terms of you know, thinking about, well, what are the side effects of my treatment going to be in 20 years from now, if you're treating a seven-year-old, you know, you're, you're playing for the near-term extension of, 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 of life. But when you're treating a child with a disease that is, by the way, got a, a high survival rate, these children with low-grade gliomas tend to not die of their low-grade gliomas. 90% of them survive. They die um, you know, uh, of low-grade gliomas sometimes, but complications of their therapy. But if you survive, you're surviving with the sequelae of all of the intensive treatment that you've given in the 
years or, or many years prior, and you've got to live the rest of your life like that, that can have profound impact on learning. It can have profound impact on ability to live independently. It can have, you know, as, as you indicated, secondary uh, or tertiary downstream health effects. Uh, and it's really tragic. I mean, you know, having, having taken care of children who've gotten treated very aggressively for, you know, acute lipoblastic leukemia, when you see a 10-year-old with osteoporosis from getting high-dose steroids or a kid who's 16 and needs cataract surgery, or you treat a child when they're an infant with a topicide and then they come back, you know, 15 years later with AML, we, we can do, we must do better. And that's why, you know, the development of targeted therapies for children, I think it needs to be pursued with such vigor and intensity. We, we, we have made great strides as a community treating kids with multi-agent chemotherapy and survival for children with cancer is better than survival for adults with cancer. But the cost is so high to these families and these children over many, many decades of life. So you've got a real sense of urgency here based on this phase one data set. Uh, it's been presented at the Society for Neuro-Oncology. Uh, you've got now your clinical development plan with this Firefly study. Um, how, how have you set this up to give it the, the best possible chance at succeeding? Yeah, can I chime in for just a second? Because I think a big part of why we're successful is the people. Um, and I, I think that, you know, Sam, as you, you can tell, is a really extraordinary person. And, and Sam, I, you know, I'm going to compliment you for a minute. So I see your face on Zoom, but I, I really think that this matters. The, the people who have chosen to join this company are really, in my opinion, very special. Because as you can tell, we actually have to meet families and parents whose kids are, are either have died of cancer and or are very scared because their child's sick. And people who choose to come to, to dedicate their expertise in drug discovery and in science or in you know, navigating the FDA or CMC that know that they are going to be treating kids with cancer, it's, it's really um, a commitment. And um, they are people who have to be kind and they have to be able to have a lot of hard conversations with families and talk about really uncomfortable topics like why aren't there better treatments for kids with cancer and how do we make a difference? And, you know, we've recruited a lot of experienced people. We had a, we had a rule early on when we were starting the company, which was no rookies. Because we have to go fast and because we are being trusted with people's children, the people that we wanted to hire, we wanted to be absolutely expert, but they also had to be kind. And so people like Davey Kyoden, who helped us navigate with the FDA and EMEA to figure out how do we get this product approved faster, you know, talking to people like Mike Prey, who used to run CMC for Array, on how do we create infant formulations with kinase inhibitors. Kinase inhibitors are not soluble. So when you think about how do you actually get something into a, a six-month-old that gives them the appropriate PK, that's actually a really hard scientific problem. When you you look at Sam, Sam has dedicated 20 years of his career to thinking about how to innovate new medicines clinically for children with cancer across all, all settings. And so we have people who are intentionally selected and that's why we're able to do it. And, you know, Jeremy Bender, who, who joined um, later in, in 2019, really took over the company in September you know, he had a lot of job offers. He was running corporate corporate development for oncology at, at Gilead. He had a lot of offers. And for him to come and join a company that is dedicated to in 
you know, a population that most pharmaceutical companies thought were a bad idea to pursue. Um, he, he is an extraordinary leader. And a part of the job when he joined was, I said, Jeremy, it's going to change your life. It changed mine. You're going to talk to a lot of families that, that are going to have difficult conversations. You're going to have to talk to them about why our industry hasn't done more work. And you have to want to do that. And so the way that we've moved so fast, the way that we've acquired new programs and, and brought these people on and to be able to stand up in a pandemic, a registrational study, and then buy two more programs and raise 200 more million dollars and double the size. It's, it's all people. It's all really unbelievably committed expert people. And, um, and I think the mission is part of the reason why they wanted to join. And I think we offer an opportunity for people in pharma to, to really show that we do good. And I think that that means a lot to people right now. Um, and this is an avenue for that. And uh, I don't know, Sam, if you want to say more, I know I'm complimenting you, but I do think the people that we had to recruit to, to build this company effectively needed to have very unique skills, not only as a person, but as, a, as an expert in the industry. I'm glad you brought this up, Julie, because one time we spoke earlier, you described the mission itself as a source of competitive advantage. And I remember thinking, I haven't really heard someone say it in quite that way before, um, but I think it wasn't too long after when, you know, you bring in a guy like Jeremy Bender to be the CEO, um, you know, because you had been acting, you had been the CEO up until that point and, you know, juggling, I don't know how many other things you've got going as a partner in a venture firm, but it's a lot. Uh, so that mission is part of what appealed to, to bring in a guy like Jeremy, uh, who can yeah. go off to the races and do some of these other things, like take the company public, raise all that money, you know, bring in some of these extra assets. And beyond that, I mean, I really do, you know, obviously, you know, when the science has to be, be, be right and the math has to work. Yes. We still, you know, the conventional rules of gravity still apply, but the mission, it's, it's hard to, it's hard. We find in talking to people, we, we don't find a lot of people who, who, who want to be skeptical about what we're trying to do. We think a lot of people want to help mm -hmm. us succeed. Everybody recognizes that kids have not, been the beneficiaries of new cancer drug development at the same pace as adults. And I think it's been in a something in the back of people's minds is a problem that, yes, we need to solve that, but we don't know how to solve that. If we are a conduit for a solution or a set of solutions here, my feeling is uh, we're going to continue to attract and, 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 and ally with people across, you know, contract research organizations, academic institutions, you know, other companies looking to find homes for, for assets. I, I can, without going into specifics, I can tell you that we are now getting, you know, inbound phone calls from companies who yeah. have things in their pipeline. They're like, you know, we, we've supported an IST and we've seen a signal here, but this isn't really in our wheelhouse or on strategy for us, but we don't want to let this go. Can you, would you be willing to take a look at this? Because this is clearly what you guys are set up to do. And if that's, that, you know, if that's, that's, that's going to happen, then, then I think we're really on track to achieve our vision of being purpose-built to solve this problem. People want well, and to if all, this mission. If all goes well, knock wood, um, you could have a, your first product here 
four years after the formation of the company. Um, yeah. that, that's uh, remarkably fast in biotech terms. How, how I like to think of this is we are proving the thesis for the industry that including children is the right thing to do for patients, but it's also the right thing to do for shareholders. And what we want to do is to demonstrate to all of the large cap pharmaceutical companies and all the small cap pharma companies that's possible. It is possible to include children from the start. And you should, because you could get approved faster and you can show proof of concept and you can help patients get access. And actually that is all aligned incentives. And so we, we want to show the way. And actually we get calls from companies that say, hey, we may not want to partner our product, but we're trying to figure out how to do this in children. Like, how do we do this? We, we share. Um, we really want to be inclusive in this because we know that there are companies that may be like Takeda that need to find a home for an active product. And, and we evaluate those and we want to be the first call. Uh, we want to be the trusted collaborative partner. And um, I think that we've done an amazing job at that. And, and I'm very hopeful that hopefully, you know, we'll be able to in-license more products. I love that we've, we've brought in two MEK inhibitors uh, and that's validation that we can do it again. And I, I believe that there are more medicines out there that have the potential to help both children and adults. And we need to move fast. We need to prove that you can go from phase one to phase three in a way that people never thought was possible. And, um, and I, I hope I, that we can do it again and again. I know we're almost out of time here, but um, you know, this is one of the traditional knocks on pediatric cancer drug development is that you know the cooperative groups tend to run these trials and they tend to take a long time. Um, how are you guys doing it this fast? Because if I if I recall, your registration study uh, calls for enrolling about sixty patients. Uh, international study, something like thirty sites, yep. <laughs> so an average of two <laughs> per site. I mean, you really got to cast a pretty wide net get a number of investigators involved. How are you doing it this fast? We, you know, we, we, we have spent a lot of time laying the groundwork. At, what makes it possible, though, I think is, uh, you know, Children's Oncology Group, which is a huge cooperative group, really the, the only uh, cooperative group in the you know, federally funded cooperative group in, in the U.S. Their expertise is really running large, you know, sort of once every five year uh, uh, phase three randomized trials. But what's cropped up recently are smaller consortia like uh, Tackle Therapeutic Alliance for Childhood Leukemia or PNOC Pacific Neuro-Oncology Consortium that are disease focused, uh, where you, they pick the top 20 or 25 institutions in the United States that see most patients for the disease that they're interested in. And, and, and what we do is we partner with them. And then, you know, having hired Michael Cox, who worked for 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 Bayer and and and, and Merck KGAA and you know has an extensive European network. Davy Kioden, who worked for AstraZeneca and, and Genentech, and you know has an extensive international network. And and my academic colleagues that, that I've known for a long time, we really just we get on the phone and, and tell people we've got a trial. We want to get your input on the design. We think that this could be really important and 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 change the paradigm for treating these patients. Will you help? And people. You know, of course, they 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 want to help. So, and then we yeah. have a lot of hustle. We've got phenomenal clin ops. We've got a, a terrific CRO partner, and and we hustle. We we do it the old fashioned way. 
Yeah. At this time, it's not just like, hey, it's it's Sam, like I know you and like you anymore. It's like, no, there's other people around here now. It's a company. It's publicly traded on the NASDAQ. You can look at it like you're not just working out of your basement anymore. No, Um, no, it's not. Even though Sam has a great basement, um, I, uh, (laughs) you know, I I would say that um, it's been a joyful ride so far. And I, I think that, you know, drive this, the company is relentless. And I think what's really part of it, Luke is coming back to those people and that there are people outside our four walls. The company was, is part of a community. Um, our power is not just our employees. It's the whole community. And we have experts who are, have been given the freedom from their investors, I would say included and their board members and everyone saying, go be creative. And so we have considered trials where you, you know, in populations, others think trials couldn't be done and saying, do we fly all the patients into one site? How do we do the trial? We recruited Michael Cox, who knows how to set up trials where you, you identify a patient, you set up a site reactively, almost really rapidly to recruit a patient. We think about it innovatively and we try and re really push the limits of how can we move faster in service to patients? And, and we do it as a group. So I bet the pandemic has helped spawn some of this creative thinking. Oh yeah. We're, we're in 13 States. We are a totally different company than how other people think about companies. And I think it's what's enabled us to go from Sam and Julian, an idea to a publicly traded company with a ton of experts at multiple assets, hopefully more um, heading into a registrational trial that's up and running globally. uh, And a lot of, conversations with regulators about how do we do it again and how do we keep moving fast? Yeah, I think maybe just one, 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 one thing to finish that point. You know, I spent, I spent many years in big pharma uh, asking myself or wondering how could, you know, I love doing pediatric oncology drug development. And I, I kept, I would ask people all the time, can I ever find a job where I'm doing pediatric oncology drug development full-time? And most of them said, probably not in industry because that's not what they're going to pay you to do. There are other people, a lot of other people who have had that same thought and we've created a home for them and given them the opportunity to work on the thing that they're most passionate about 24 hours a day, seven days a week that they can think about that and work as hard as they want and think about it as much as they want. And when you give people an outlet for something that is deeply personally affecting to them uh, and you've got a a strong board and and the capital to do it, uh, they, they will come and they will they will they'll run through walls and run through fire uh, to get the work done. Uh, you know, I, I can tell you it's the the best part of my job is seeing how much other people have taken the mantle of this mission and put it on their shoulders and, and, and are just running with it. It's, it brings me more joy than I could possibly describe something having never envisioned myself uh, as being a founder of anything uh, I can say is probably the very, very best part of the experience is just witnessing how happy people are doing the thing that they love to do and are expert at. Really fascinating. Sam and Julie, uh, wish you best of luck with that registration study and all the ones to come after. Uh, Thank you for joining me today on The Long Run. Thank Thank you. you, Really, really uh, grateful. Thanks for listening to The Long Run, a production of Timmerman Report. Pedro Rosado of Headstepper Media, was the sound editor. Music is from D.A. Wallach. See you next episode.